Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the next hour here on WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation, live from Jersey City in that great state of New Jersey. And if you've been listening today, you may know that we are in the preparations for our upcoming fundraising marathon. And that means that all the shows are coming at you from Studio B, which is um, a little bit of a a little bit of a different experience. We we um, are upstairs from our main studio, and so just just needs a little extra configuration. So that uh, that explains why you got to hear a little more of the theme music than you usually do. <laughs> but everything's good, and I've got a great interview for you this evening. Um, we're going to be talking about cybersecurity with Scott Shapiro, who is a professor at Yale Law School and the author of a really interesting and engaging and, in, 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 in many places, entertaining book called Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age and Five Extraordinary Hacks. And you're going to hear um, in the interview some of the hacks and how they relate to Scott's overall message about what cybersecurity is and why it's important for us to focus on it. After the interview, I think we're going to have a few extra minutes. Um, I want to take you through a couple of recent news items that really underline, uh, once again, how important it is for us to be thinking about cybersecurity. Um, I'm going to play the interview here in a second. There's there's one other little Easter egg which I didn't I didn't plan for this, but as it turns out, today is President's Day. Happy President's Day, everybody! And there is one U.S. president mentioned in the interview, and you will know when he appears. It's a really fascinating story. If you would like to join in the live listener chat during the show, go to wfmu.org and click playlist and comments. And um, if you are listening to the show in the future to an archive or podcast version, you can go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm and go to the February 19, 2024 show, click the playlist link and you'll see a link to, uh, to Scott and to the book. And below that, you will see the comments from the listeners tonight. And those are all of your resources that you can follow up on. But for now, let's go ahead and listen now to my interview with Scott Shapiro, author of Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, here on Tectonic on WFMU. Scott Shapiro, welcome to Tectonic. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show. I'm excited to talk about your book. Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age in Five Extraordinary Hacks. And I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It covers the history of cybersecurity through, as you say in the subtitle, the stories of five major hacks on computers and the internet and on one famous sidekick cell phone, which I hope we'll get into. Uh, As these stories progress chronologically, we're getting a kind of history of hacks, cybersecurity, the development of the internet, as we see organizations and governments gradually start to take security more seriously. And then in the final part of the book, you explain what cybersecurity ultimately means. And again, I hope we'll get to that because I I thought that was a really important part of the book. Really well written throughout. I want to start with the very first hack that you talk about in the book, the so-called Morris worm. The question here, Scott, is how did a Cornell grad student bring down the internet in 1988 with a few lines of code? Yeah, so um, thanks for asking. Um, so the Morris worm is considered the first internet hack. So on November 2nd, 1988 at 8 p.m., um, Robert Morris Jr., who at the time was a first-year graduate student at Cornell, released a self-reproducing program, what we now call a computer worm, and went to dinner. Um, and when he got back, he realized that not only what were the, um, the network at Cornell um, had gone down, 
but he had brought down most of the internet as well. He did not mean to uh, bring down the internet. He was not, he did not have any malicious intent. He was like engaged in a science experiment. He just wanted to see if he could do it. And um, he did it um, and he did it too well. Um, and um, he ultimately was prosecuted and then convicted of criminal hacking under the newly uh, enacted at the time Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. All right. So we'll get to the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But during those initial hours when the worm is just taking down server after server, I thought there was a, a funny point in this story you bring up that as Morris saw the destruction unfolding, he tried to send out an anonymous message saying, here's how to get the worm off of your system. But the message couldn't make it out because the internet was down. <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. Like if you unwittingly attack the communication system, you won't be able to send the help message. Um, what happened was that the worm was so effective at breaking into computers that it kept on breaking in to the same computer over and over again. And like the flu or COVID, it reproduced so much that it took up all the capacity of the computer to compute. Now, I want to reassure listeners of something because we're, we're talking about what's happening within these servers and what's happening uh, system-wide on the internet. This book is extremely readable. You are very conversational in how you describe what's happening when the worm attacks. And you go to great lengths to make sure the reader can understand step by step. Even if they have no technical background, it's crystal clear how this uh, worm actually operated. And as I read this first story, this the story of this Morris worm, I was thinking to myself, Scott Shapiro is a professor of law and philosophy at Yale Law School, not the first person I would have expected <laughs> to write a book about how worms affect computer servers. So, Scott, how did you come to write such a technically accurate as well as very readable book about cybersecurity? Well, um, originally, uh, when I was, I was young, around the beginning of high school, I believe, the first general-purpose computers um, became available to the public to purchase. So you may remember the TRS-80, Tandy Radio Shack 80, that was sold out of uh, the Radio Shack stores, which no longer exist. Um, my parents bought me an Apple II um, to use at home because I became so obsessed with personal computers, not just playing video games on them, but, but really using them to program. Um, and then I studied computer science in, in college, um, and I had a computer company um, that was so long ago that you couldn't actually make money having a computer company. Um, and then I decided that my future would not be in computers, but rather in legal philosophy. So I went to law school and, and um, graduate school. And then I lost touch with, with coding and the internet. I used the internet, I had no idea how it worked. And then it was only about, uh, I would say about eight years ago, I had published a book with my colleague Ona Hathaway on, on history of war. And people started asking me, well, what about cyber war? And I thought, well, you know, what about cyber war? I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and I, 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 I could figure it out. I, I know how to code. I, I, have, I have a background and I couldn't figure it out. I mean, I was really amazed on how difficult it was, even for somebody with a technical background, to understand hacking and cybersecurity. There are all these weird terms like fuzzing and sinkholing and, and evil made attacks. And I just thought, what, what is this? Um, and so I really set out to learn um, how to hack, learn about cybersecurity. And then I thought, well, you know what? I, sh I should write a book about what I learned so that other people uh, can learn what I learned because I was excited about it. But it's also, um, it's a shame. It's a real shame that we live in an information society um, and everything is about 
computers and the internet and now artificial intelligence and all this stuff. And we, we're, we hear all the time about hacking and all this stuff and, and very few people really know about it. So I thought, what if I wrote a book that was fun to read, but also explained the material? So that's how it happened. You started with an Apple II. You mentioned the TRS-80. I remember both of those. Some of my friends back in the 80s had the Commodore 64. <laughs> and our first computer at home was the TI-99-4A. Not too many people had a Texas Instruments home computer. Uh, I have never heard of that, actually. <laughs> it was fun. And I did, I did some basic programming on that. But it was just a few years later... Uh, was the first time I was aware of hacking and probably the first time a lot of Americans of, of our certain age became aware of hacking. In 1983, I went to the movie theater and I saw a movie called War Games starring Matthew Broderick, who's probably best known for Ferris Bueller. But in War Games, Broderick is playing a high school student who uses a new device called a modem which was so cool. He took the handset from the phone and put it into this cradle connected to the computer, which then dialed into his high school's uh, server where Broderick's character was able to change his grades. And then later in the movie, he hacks into the government's computers using the same modem and starts what he thinks is a computer game about nuclear war, but really is threatening an actual nuclear launch. And so there's the premise of the movie, War Games. So that was 1983. Interestingly enough, this movie shows up in your book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, because shortly after the movie's release, President Ronald Reagan watches the movie, and that viewing connects directly with the story of the Morris Worm in 1988. So can you tell us the connection between War Games, Ronald Reagan, and the Morris Worm, which I found fascinating? Absolutely. Um, I, I would just say that um, in researching the book, and I discovered this, I thought it was fascinating too. Um, so what happens is Ronald Reagan has this meeting with the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all the head of congressional delegations, a very, very serious meeting. And he mentions that he has seen this movie the Friday before. It hadn't actually come out in the movie theaters um, um, yet. He had gotten an early preview. And he says, I see, I saw this movie about, um, about this teenager that um, almost starts a nuclear war through computers. And he, he, he asks the generals, his generals, and he says, you know, could this happen? And they say, um, you know, yes, Mr. President, we will go do research. And they come back, having discovered um, that actually the army had been worried about this for 20 years already, and comes back and says, actually, it's a it's a big problem. And um, Congress gets into the action, the chair of the uh, congressional committee that was holding hearings, actually plays a clip of war games to enter into evidence. You know, when we think our politics now is silly, you know, politics has always been kind of silly. And that this leads to the enactment of what's called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which is the main federal statute for hacking, for criminalizing hacking, and which Robert Morris Jr. becomes the first person to be convicted of. So there's a direct line from War Games, Ronald Reagan, to Robert Morris Jr. You bring up in the book that had Morris released his worm just a few years earlier, before the act had been passed, he would not have been prosecuted. Absolutely. I mean, there, there are, we all know that Computer code is very technical. If you make one little change, you know, the whole thing can go south. But the same thing is true for law. Law is very technical, too. And had had the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act not been enacted um, just two years before, Robert Morris Jr. would not have been prosecuted for it. Um, and he was also uh, sentenced at the time that this new law called the sentencing guidelines came into being. And so he might have gone to jail for, for, he didn't actually end up going to jail, 
but under the sentencing guidelines, he should have gone to jail for for a long time. Um, so there are all these kinds of interesting relations between uh, computer technicalities and legal technicalities in the book. Okay, let's go to another hack that you cover in the book. This is the one relating to the famous sidekick cell phone that I mentioned at the beginning of the interview. In 2005, a teenage hacker, uh, 16-year-old Cameron LaCroix, took particular interest in the data that resided on one particular sidekick. So there's your lead, Scott. What was, what was that story? Yeah, so um, I, I may actually have to explain who Paris Hilton is um, for some of your listeners because um, this is one of the things that I discovered teaching uh, younger people is that not everyone knows who Paris Hilton is. But Paris Hilton was, in 2005, maybe the most famous person on the planet. She was famous for uh, being famous. And um, she had just been in the news because her ex-boyfriend released a sex tape. And obviously, she was humiliated by that. And then the 16-year-old hacks her phone and finds intimate topless photos on it. And he also releases that onto the internet. So uh, 2005 is a, is, is a bad year for Paris Hilton. The incredible thing about this story, the way you tell the story about Cameron LaCroix hacking the data that was on Paris Hilton's cell phone, is that as you're going through chronologically, you're showing that there were all sorts of suppositions about how her phone was hacked. There was this weird theory that maybe at the Oscars, someone had used this nascent technology called Bluetooth uh, to, to hack phones there, but it turns out she wasn't even at the ceremony and other people had other equally far out theories about the hack. Then at the end of this case study, you make the reveal about how Cameron LaCroix actually got the data. And as I understand, and we're going to go over the, the broad contours of it here, this was the first time that anyone told the full story of how LaCroix hacked the phone. And it's a scoop in your book. Is that right? I, I, I was really surprised by by that too that I was able to get the story so as you point out there were just so many wild speculations and a lot of it was quite misogynistic actually um, claiming that she was stupid and that um, her password was easy to guess and um, it really it, it was dispiriting reading a lot of the stories about it um, there was lots of speculation some of it was more informed than others, but nobody really knew the story. And so what I did in the book was I wrote what I thought was the best theory. I had been for years trying to get Cameron LaCroix. Cameron was in jail for another spate of uh, cybercrime. And then COVID happened. And so I thought, oh, my goodness, maybe he'll, you know, die in jail. And then he gets out and he goes to a halfway house. And so that's private. You can't uh, get information about who, who's at what halfway house. And then I finally find him, of all places, on LinkedIn. I then message him and he writes back to me two weeks before the book goes to press. And he tells me the story, and um, I don't want to ruin um, the surprise about how it's done, but, um, but that's uh, how that story of that hack ends, by me telling about my conversation, not only with him about how the hack happened, but also, you know, why he led the life of cybercrime that he led. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I'm your host. We are halfway through my interview with Scott Shapiro talking about his book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, 
the dark history of the information age and five extraordinary hacks. And we're having a good conversation on the comment board at WFMU.org. You can join in if you like. Let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Scott Shapiro here on Tectonic on WFMU. And we should say the hack itself was not just one thing. You say throughout the book and multiple of these case studies, you talk about something called the kill chain, which is basically the series of steps that all have to be executed correctly in order for the hackers to get access to the data or the server or whatever they're after. In Cameron LaCroix's case, there was also a kill chain. So it's it's not like... Um, it's not like in the movies when you see the hacker furiously typing at the keyboard and there's all these obscure characters, usually green text on a black background, <laughs> like in the yes. Matrix. And then they say the famous phrase, I'm in. And then, you know, th- then the hack is done. It's it's not like that. There's There's several things. No, that's right. So one of the things that when you learn how to hack, you realize how tedious it can be. You're just sitting there hour after hour after hour, day after day, trying this, trying that, trying to get in, trying to get more information. You get in, you're trying to elevate privileges, trying to move from one account to another. It's extremely frustrating. But if you, when you succeed, it is among the most thrilling experiences. It is absolutely wonderful when it works. So in the book, and when I teach this at Yale, I always want to point out, you know, hacking is seriously fun, and it's so interesting, and it's really intellectually absorbing, but one has to do it responsibly. One has to realize that you do not want to hack somebody over the internet to begin with, um, certainly without, with, without their consent, because not only is it a crime, but it's a, it's a jerky thing to do. Uh, we, don't, we may not see the effects of our actions because some, it's some IP address somewhere, but there are real human beings on the other side of this. And so when I teach this and when I, I write in the book, I, it's really, really important to approach the subject as fun and interesting and exciting as it is with a moral compass. And that brings up one of the recurring themes of this book, which is the difference between what you call upcode and downcode. I'm going to let you describe those, but I, I just I want to tell listeners again a bit of context about this book, that you're not just covering cybersecurity from the technological angle, the server architecture and the files are here and the internet protocol is there. I mean, you, you, you do touch on those, but really you're making the point again and again that this is really about people. It's about society and motivations. And as you just said, it's about ethics. So within that frame, what should we know about upcode and downcode? Thank you for asking. Um, So imagine you're sitting at your computer keyboard. So down code is all the stuff below your fingertips. It's your application, your operating system. It's the firmware in your router. It's the lines of code that your ISP is running. That's what I call down code. Up code is all the rules above your fingertips. So your personal ethics, your beliefs, your habits, but also the rules of your workplace, the rules of your industry, your profession, the social norms, the legal rules, all this stuff I call upcode. We all always focus on when we think about hacking, we focus on the downcode, that is on the technical stuff, because Obviously, we're talking about computers, but we ignore the upcode, all the rules that 
give human beings incentives to act as they do. And what I try to show is that downcode, of course, is important, but upcode in a way is even more important because upcode is what produces downcode. Microsoft and Bill Gates, they did not find the 5 million, 50 million lines of Windows 10 code in nature, like under a rock somewhere. Many people over decades built it. And they built it for many reasons, many human reasons. Well, it was a good job and they made money and they made money because Microsoft owned the intellectual property and they there were corporate policies that say you get paid on a certain date. And, um, you know, it's lots of people like the prestige you're working at Microsoft. A lot of people love the puzzle solving aspects of it. There are all these human reasons that generate the computer code that we live with. The point that I think people miss is that we live with such bad down code because we live with such bad up code. That is the law, especially the law, does not give businesses the right incentives to act responsibly. It's also true that people who ran Microsoft in the late 1990s and 2000s, they did not act responsibly. And because they did not act responsibly, we were stuck with operating systems that were really bad. And if we want to make ourselves more secure, we have to focus on the human elements. Yeah, you write about the incentives of Microsoft quite a bit in, in this case study. And you talk about the Microsoft of the late 90s and early 2000s. As you say, it was doing these horribly unethical things to suppress competition, to go as fast as they could to release their shoddy product that had all sorts of security issues. And they knew that they were harming customers individually and customers' businesses. They knew because the customers were complaining because of the shoddy security of Microsoft products, customers lost thousands or millions of dollars. But for reasons you explain in the book, and an especially enraging passage, you describe why software companies like Microsoft have no liability for negligence like this, or at least it's limited liability, a lot less than the liability they should have. And so Microsoft did these unethical things in a bid to get to market, and they got away with it. What I found interesting is that that pattern of un unethical behavior in a rush to market is the same pattern we see today with the big tech monopolies, again, running roughshod over competition, as well as their own customers and even their own workers in some cases in order to pursue growth at any cost. So it was just interesting and maybe a little depressing, uh, enraging, as I said, to see that what big tech is doing today, many of those same unethical practices were being followed over 20 years ago by Microsoft and other companies. Now that's, it's, it's depressing and enraging. One of the things that one learns by being a law professor, um, I guess you don't have to be a law professor to know this, but Certainly, history would suggest that at least businesses, not all businesses, but many businesses, if they are not forced to internalize their costs, they won't. So before there were strict environmental laws, lots of companies dumped dangerous chemicals into the river, um, belched uh, uh, noxious gases into the air. And the government had to come along and had to stop this practice to say, if you continue doing this, you're going to have to pay the price. And they didn't want to pay the price. This is a, this is a pattern that gets played out over and over again. And if you, as you live, you, you, you not only learn about it in the books, you see it repeat in front of your eyes. And it's, it's depressing. It's depressing 
that the law has to come along and make people do what they should do. Um, but in fact, that is uh, the answer many times. Well, the good news here is that you're doing important work at Yale to teach the next generation of leaders some of those ethics and morals. And the readers of this book are also going to get an education on these points as well. So you're out there doing good work. That makes me feel better. In the last section of the book, you're finishing with a reflection on morality in the tech industry. And a lot of books that I've read and covered on this show have a final section that say, what's next? We should all try to do better. And that's always a welcome way to finish a book, I think. But you did something unique here. I've never seen any other book take a mathematical approach to arguing in favor of ethics and morality in the tech industry. And what you're doing is you're taking on this idea of solutionism, which is this idea that comes out of Silicon Valley that, hey, technology is going to take care of everything. Don't stand in the way of tech's progress because it's all inevitable and growth at any cost is a good thing. And if there's a problem, we'll just have more technology to fix it no matter what. And you have a response to solutionism, which is the same as mine, which is that it's wrong. It's arrogant, it's harmful, and it's wrong. But as I said, you take a a mathematical approach here by drawing on the work of Alan Turing, early computer scientist. A lot of people saw in the movie The Imitation Game, which was a story of Alan Turing. We're not going to get into, we don't have time to get into the whole proof that Alan Turing advanced. But let me just ask you, am I reading this right, Scott, that it is possible to use a mathematical proof, as Alan Turing did, to prove the tech bros wrong and to show that solutionism does not work. Is that right? That it, That is right. That's actually provably correct. So Alan Turing was, you know, we throw around the word genius a lot. The guy was a genius. Um, and in 1923, he not only comes up with the idea of a physical computing device, which then turns into the general all-purpose computer that, that we know, but he actually proves that there are problems that could never be solved by a computer. In fact, what he shows is that the problems that can be solved by computer technology are an infinitesimally small fraction of all the problems that could possibly exist. So if you think there's an app for that, there isn't. That is, we only see the problems that we can solve with computers because we can solve them with computers. But there are an infinite number of problems that can never be solved by computers, which is a really humbling, I think, uh, a message. It means that the universe is not designed for us to necessarily understand it. In fact, there's only a very small fraction of things we can understand. And again, this is, you know, you may have a, you may draw a spiritual um, message from this, but it really just is a mathematical proof. Um, And when I say that this is a mathematical proof, and as you point out, it's in the end of the book, there's no, there are no symbols. There's no, there's no um, trigonometric functions. You know, you can describe it in words. It's only in a couple of pages. It's easy to understand. um, And I don't want to ruin it, but I, I hope you come away from the book, not only with a sense that technology is interesting and that you understand it more and that you also recognize the relationship that human beings and morality plays, but that really there is an absolute hard limit to what technology can solve. And with that, I hope it's uh, humbling 
and makes us um, a bit less arrogant in our approach to the world. Yeah, as you write near the end of the book, solutionism eclipses our moral agency and sense of responsibility. How to patch our upcode is not a matter of technology. It is a matter of morality. Cybersecurity is a political decision. Reading those words, I thought, there it is. You've brought it all together. So here we have these five hacks that describe the history of cybersecurity and serve as a a history of the internet in some ways. But really in this book, you're leading us to the point where we can see what cybersecurity really means. And it means just what you just said, Scott, having some humility about our abilities and taking a moral responsibility for building a better world with technology. And that's a message that applies so much further than just cybersecurity. Yes, I think that's, uh, that was the message I wanted to get through in the book. And it's really gratifying to me um, to hear it uh, recapped so eloquently. Well, Scott Shapiro, this has been such a pleasure. The book is Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. And we didn't even get to who Fancy Bear is or even what fishing is. By the way, that's P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. So listeners, you're going to have to read the book to find out, which I recommend doing. Uh, And we only got to two of the hacks. Anyway, the dark history of the information age in five extraordinary hacks. Scott Shapiro, thanks again for being on the show, and I hope you'll be back sometime. Thank you so much, Mark. This was really a terrific conversation. I'd love to be back. back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on Mark, on Mark Hurst. I'm Mark Hurst. You're listening to the show on WFMU. Freeform Station of the Nation from Jersey City. We just heard my interview with Scott Shapiro, author of the book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing, The Dark History of the Information Age and Five Extraordinary Hacks. As you heard in the interview, Scott is a professor at Yale Law School, and he's written a very readable and informative and, at times, enraging, depressing, scary, but also entertaining book (laughs) about cybersecurity and, in a way, a history of how the Internet has developed over the years. We have had a good conversation on the comment board WFMU.org and um, if you listen in the future you can go back in the archives and and read the comments I just wanted to read one of the comments that came in um, midway through the interview from listener Segfish who writes my ex worked for Microsoft in the 90s debugging new software He he found countless bugs some quite significant that were not fixed before release. It enraged him, and ultimately he quit working for them. And, you know, that that tracks very closely with what Scott is writing about when he covers Microsoft in the 90s. And as I, as I pointed out, there are many parallels to the behavior of the big tech companies, which include Microsoft, today in terms of their unethical behavior and their bid for growth at any cost. Um, one of the things that Scott points out in that case study, I mean, in the, in the time of the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, Facebook was not around. Um, Amazon was, was around, but it wasn't a giant monopoly as it is now. So the, the tech um, ecosystem was very different. At the time, Microsoft was this, was this hulking behemoth, still called the evil empire, um, And another company that Scott covers at the same time is T-Mobile, which Scott points out had some of the same shoddy security practices at the time. 
And what Scott's pointing out is one of the drivers of that behavior, of that unethical behavior, is that in technology so often it's, it's a winner-take-all market. Whether you're Microsoft in the, in the software industry or you're T-Mobile in the telecom industry, consumer telecom, there's, there's a bunch of competitors and everybody knows there's going to be one ascendant monopoly or near monopoly. And so the companies are doing everything they can to gain market share no matter what, as fast as they can, because they know that if they don't use the, uh, I should say, they perceive that if they don't use the dirty tricks, the shoddy practices, the deceptive marketing, and so on, some other competitor will, and they will reach that market share before, uh, before they do. So Scott is telling stories of both Microsoft and T-Mobile, how they misbehaved in, in various ways, and customers got hurt. And it doesn't make me feel any better about the behavior of those companies to understand the business dynamics. I still think it's wrong. And I, I'm, I'm heartened by Segfish's comment that there are individuals out there who see what's happening and they say, I'm not going to work here anymore. I'm not going to be a party to such awful behavior, such harmful behavior towards, uh, towards the world. And... Um, so thanks for sharing that, Segfish. The other thing I wanted to talk about briefly is I wanted to say something about phishing uh, because I mentioned at the end of the interview that the um, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing is spelled P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. By the way, Fancy Bear, I could just tell you, is a Russian government-sponsored hacking group that has been involved in a number of high-profile hacks, and you can read all about it in the book. So that's, that's Fancy Bear. Um, phishing is the practice, it's a, it's a common practice of spammers sending out a huge number of emails hoping that someone will answer with their password or their credentials in some way to log into an account. And there's a bunch of different ways to write the spam emails to try to convince people to uh, give up their password. Sometimes you can pretend that you're sending an email from... Uh, Amazon, let's say, and it says, your password needs to be updated, so please click here, and they make it look like an, Am an Amazon email, and when the, when the victim clicks on the link, they go to a, a webpage that looks just like the Amazon um, password r reset page, uh, and a lot of people don't check the, the URL, the web address up at the top, and they don't notice that it's not Amazon.com as a domain, and so then they, they, they get suckered in. And so that's, that's a successful phishing attack. Um, but that's when spammers are emailing thousands and thousands of people, hoping that one or two will come back with, with uh, their credentials. Phishing is, there's a certain kind of phishing, though, that's a little different. That's called spear phishing. And that's when you're going after one specific person or maybe a limited set of known individuals. And that's, you can think of the person with the spear saying, I, you know, standing, standing at the water's edge saying, I want to get that fish. And they throw the spear in. That's spear fishing when you are designing an attack to, uh, to try to fool a certain person. So maybe you use certain personal details that you have about them in order to get a response. And then there's Whaling, W-H-A-L-I-N-G, and that's when it's spear phishing, but it's against a high-profile target, like a celebrity or, or ultra-wealthy person. That's whaling. So that's spear phishing against high-profile targets. So phishing, spear phishing, whaling, all of those um, Scott covers in the book, which is quite interesting. And then comes this story. Just a few days ago in New York Magazine... In a, in a part of the site called The Cut. The headline is, The day I put $50,000 in a shoebox and handed it to a stranger. And it's written by Charlotte Cowles, who is The Cut's financial advice columnist. And I put a link to this story on the, uh, on the playlist at WFMU.org. Uh, if you're interested in cybersecurity and or horror stories, this is one to read. It's really well written, and it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's, it's just so terrifying that, well, let me tell you what happens. And, and she goes into some detail, but she got caught by a phishing attack. 
And she ended up handing, as the headline says, she ended up handing $50,000 in cash to the scammers. Not, of course, not knowing that it was the scammers. But the thing about this is, the twist is that Charlotte Cowles, as she says early in her story, um, she is a financial advice writer. I mean, she's been she's been covering this stuff for years. She's written about security. She's written about um, scammers and so on. And so she is an unlikely person, one would think, to be taken in by this scam. But here's the thing that I've heard, not just from her, but from other people. Cory Doctorow, who's been on the show, um, wrote about something similar when he got taken in. Here's the thing, friends. You pay, pay close attention to this. Everybody can get scammed. Anybody can get taken in by a phishing attack or some other uh, fraud. Any, everyone is vulnerable. So even if you think, oh, I wouldn't get taken in by that, maybe you're right. Maybe you would not have been taken in by that one, but there's one lurking out there that can take you in. And so we, we have to be on guard uh, about what these frauds are and to take action and, and, to, and to keep our wits about us because the, the scammers, the fraudsters are out there and they are going to target everybody eventually. So what happened to Charlotte Cowles is that um, somebody called her. The caller ID said that the caller was from Amazon. And someone says, oh, I'm from Amazon customer service. There's been, there's been some unusual activity that we think may be fraudulent in your Amazon account. Um, did, did you recently buy several computers, MacBooks and iPads? And she said, no. And she said, oh, well, you know what? There's so much identity theft these days. We've been having a problem. I'm going to transfer you to someone at the Federal Trade Commission who's going to walk you through next steps. And so it goes from there. Of course, the entire thing is a scam. There's a team of scammers working together to, to read through the script and see how far they can, they can take the mark. And Charlotte was completely taken in. And it go, you can read the story. It just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. Um, so they're telling her that the CIA is involved and um, her, she and her family may physically be at risk. So she gets very scared and, um, and ends up withdrawing $50,000 from the bank and, and handing it to someone in a, in a, in a car who drives, who drives past. It's, it's a crazy story. And I'm so glad that she shared it um, because this should be a, a, a warning to all of us. Corey Doctorow um, similarly told a story recently in his newsletter about when he was visiting New Orleans a few weeks ago and someone calls and they said they're from his bank and it looks like there's been some fraudulent activity in his bank account and could he give his, was it his credit card? I think it was his credit card number they needed him to read out. And so he read out, he was, you know, he was, uh, I think he was on his way to the airport. He was busy. He was distracted. He was on vacation. And so he said, yeah, fine, fine. Let me just take care of this really quick. And he reads out the information and bam, his credit card is, uh, is stolen. And so, of course, the, the fraud alert from the bank was actually the scammer himself calling. So one tip that I, if, if I can offer one that I have come across, that I think is, is very helpful that would help guard against many of these frauds is when somebody calls and they say, I'm from your bank or I'm from your credit card company or I'm from Amazon. Well, you shouldn't use Amazon, but if, if, if you do use Amazon or whoever, some, some big company, and they say, um, I need your password, I need your account number, or I need some credential because, and they give a really good reason, there's been fraud on your account or something else. It, again, the fraud could take any number of forms, but when the call, here's the, here's the key. When the call comes in to you, and it's an incoming call, and they're asking you to give them some credentials, don't give it. Instead, and it could be a legitimate call. I've gotten fraud calls from my credit card bank. Instead, what you do is you say, I'm going to get back to you but let me call you. And I'm not going to call any phone number you give me right now. I'm going to look up the phone number of the bank or Amazon customer service or whoever, and I'm going to call you directly. And then I'm going to talk to a customer service rep and, and find out what the deal is. 
So if your bank calls and they, and I think several years ago, now that I'm thinking of this, um, Matt Howey, if any of you recognize that name, Matt Howey, uh, founder of Metafilter, was taken in by this same sort of thing. Someone from his either bank or credit union, they claimed they were from, uh, called him and said, you know, fraud, something else, and he gave them some credentials and he lost some money. And I remember him saying, what I should have done is I should have hung up and called my bank and said, hey, is there any fraudulent activity on my account? Because I just got a call saying it was from you. And it, if, if, if you just do that, a lot of these frauds dissolve right away. Of course, it's not very convenient, especially like Corey was in New Orleans and he's in the midst of a bunch of things and it's a, it's a bad time, he's distracted. It's not convenient to stop everything, look up the phone number of the bank and make that call, but you can't trust any incoming calls. <laughs> Just like you can't really trust um, incoming emails um, most of the time. So any of these inbound communications that could be sent by a scammer, unfortunately, we have to, uh, we, we have to assume that the scammers could send an email or make a phone call to us at any time, and we have to be on guard for that. So if you want some more uh, horror stories, I would re I'd recommend not just Charlotte Cow's story, but uh, obviously Scott Shapiro's book, Fancy Bear Goes Fishing. And I hope this helps raise people's awareness a little bit. I learned a lot from this book. I mean, I've, I've done a bunch of reading, but I always, I always learn from, from these interviews and these books. And I think it's important that we all continue to learn um, be, because we need to be on our guard from, from uh, the bad guys out there. Um, what, do, what do I want to do next? I want to say something um, about the month that we're in. Um, my buddy, DJ Erwin Chusid, uh has reminded us all that, that the, month, the second month of the year, I know that it starts with an F and it ends in Airy, and we all know it's called Frampuary in honor of Peter Frampton. And so we're going to, we're going to end tonight's show, not with an outro, but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to end with a Framptro. Yeah, it's, 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 it's Frampuary and we're going to end with a Framptro. And I'm happy to say this was suggested by Erwin Chusid himself. So thank you, Erwin. Um, we're going to hear, we're going to hear an instrumental, which, um, which is, is a, appropriately enough, it's called booted up, which is what we should be doing with our devices after they crash because, because of the scammers. We've got to boot it up. And so for Frampuary, we're going to hear booted up by Peter Frampton. And um, I want you to stay tuned because Dave Mandel is coming on right after this with It's Complicated, which is his prog rock show. And then we're going to hear Bad Animals with Amanda and Jim the Poet. And then with his fantastic eponymous show, Daniel Blumen, brother Daniel Blumen, is going to be on from 9 p.m. to midnight Eastern. If you want uh, more information on Tectonic, go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H, tonic.fm. And my email, if you want to send me an inbound email, don't ask for my password, though, or my numbers or whatever. But if you want to send a comment, I'm at mark at wfmu.org. And that's about all the time I have, friends. Until next week, you know exactly what to do. Avoid Apple, abandon Amazon, forget Facebook, and whatever you do, get off Google. And you're listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Have a great week, everybody.
away we go. Welcome to another installment, another weekly installment of It's Complicated, one hour of Prague and Prague-adjacent music. I'm your host, Dave Mandel. I'm here every Monday at this time, which is 7 p.m. Eastern. Welcome. And I'm going to start the show with something new, actually, from Ty Siegel. I've been listening to this a lot in the last few days, and I really like it. Ty Siegel has a new album called Three Bells, and it is very proggy. And we're going to hear a track from it, a piece called The Bell, new from Ty Siegel, and then we'll see. Yes. 
Wow. New music from Ty Siegel. That's from his new album, brand new album, which is called, uh, <laughs> which is called Three Bells. Wants to keep you in suspense there for a couple seconds. Then we heard a track called The Bell. Very good. Very prog- subtly proggy. Subtle is good once in a while. And we're going to move on to something older now. Now, I've, I've mentioned this before, and I shouldn't say it. I'm going to say it again, and I shouldn't say it again. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes certain prog vocals are problematic for me, right? Sometimes I, I, I tend to favor always, always, since I've been doing a show here, the, the hundred years I've been doing a show here at FMU, I tend to favor instrumental music. That's just the way it is. And with prog, sometimes, sometimes... Vocals can be a little bit much. And Italian prog, well, don't even get me started. So I, I say all that as, as, a, as a sort of a mild apology for, for some of the vocals in this next track, which I'm not a big fan of, but it's a, it's a very good piece. This is, is going to be something from a group called Maxophone, and they were Italian and we're going to hear a track from a 1975 release, a self-titled release from 1975, Maxophone. And this will be a piece called Six Against One. Some, you know, borderline questionable singing. Just deal with it, I guess. As I lie helpless, I am flashing by. Struck down by mixed up people. 